0: Hi, I'm Mike Hatton and for over 20 years, I've been in a management role that saw me working with other managers from entry level up to and including the C-suite. The experience gained have positioned me to help many other leaders manage the stresses of not having enough time at work, not having enough family time, neglecting their health and many other challenges magnified by the recent pandemic. I founded Human Cornerstone Facilitations LLC in 2008 was based on the need to help managers improve their productivity and that of their team. I would like to show you the roadmap to becoming a great leader by harnessing your team's strengths. Welcome to my show, Cornerstone, where the foundations of leadership begin. Hi everyone, my name is Mike Hatton and welcome to my show, it's called Cornerstone. It's a show about leadership and today I have a great guest for you. He's shown a tremendous business acumen and a tremendous leadership ability. He is a Harvard-trained lawyer. He's uh, been in the corporate world. He's been with the Salvation Army as the National Commander for 34 years. Please welcome my guest, Kenneth Hodder. Kenneth, welcome. Thanks so much, Mike. It's a delight to be with you today. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's It's been a pleasure. I tell you what, there's so much that I uh, want to highlight about this. I've been uh, excited to uh, jump into this interview, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't point out a little bit and give some credit to how I came to be talking to you today. Yes. Uh, I was in a jetway in an airport, uh, leaving Dallas uh, on my way uh, to a destination. And I was behind a really nice lady in a Salvation uh, Army uniform in the jetway. And uh, I said something to her and then a question was asked about the airlines. It led to a conversation. And it turns out we were sitting next to each other. And uh, I talked to her All the way on that flight, she was so interesting, and it was your lovely wife, Jolene, who is uh, a commissioner with the Salvation Army, and she led me to you, and she was so passionate about the Salvation Army that I knew I had to try to uh, interview you and and further the
1: message uh, of the Army, so welcome. Well, thank you so much. When my wife got home that night, she could not stop talking about this fine gentleman that she had met on the airline. And she was insistent that I get in touch with you. And I'm so glad that I did because it has given us the opportunity to get together today.
0: Well, I I thank you. And I just have a feeling our paths will cross again. Absolutely. This this has started out as a friendship for me to talk to you uh, uh, before the show and everything. Let's jump right in. Um, I got to thinking about what I wanted to talk about in the Salvation Army. And... I don't think people know enough about the importance of the mission of the Salvation Army, so why don't I ask you if you would just like to describe the importance of the mission and what the Salvation Army actually does and how it's set up.
1: I'd be glad to. Many people recognize the Salvation Army in terms of the bell ringer that they see outside a store at Christmas, or they might see the thrift store at which they buy good used clothing. But the Salvation Army at its core is a evangelical part of the Christian Church. We're an international movement, we're in 133 countries around the world, and our mission is a very simple one, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and meet human needs in his name without discrimination. What that means is that we believe we're called by God to meet the needs of those who are suffering or who are most vulnerable. And from place to place, that's going to vary. Some places it might be addiction, others it might be homelessness, or people who don't have enough to eat, or there might be a need for a hospital. The Salvation Army exists to do everything we can to alleviate the needs of that community. When we send someone to a community, therefore, Mike, we don't say do the following one, two, three. We will say go to that community and do what that community needs to have done and do it in the name of christ so many people will say they know the army they're not quite sure what we do and that's because it varies so much from place to place
0: well that's incredible and i'm glad you got the chance to uh to explain that i know i've, I've learned already and i know i would uh you talked about from place to place and where the need is yes. uh, i i know you didn't start as the national commander you went many places, uh, your journey. and I know that from talking to your wife. Yes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the places you've served sure, I'll around be glad- the
1: world? Oh, I'll be glad to. I did never intend to become a Salvation Army officer, although I come from a Salvation Army family. I was convinced that my life was going to be spent in the practice of law. So I went to law school. I started a corporate and real estate practice in Los Angeles, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was intellectually stimulating. It was certainly financially very advantageous. I had a wonderful client list. I had everything to be grateful for. But a day came when the senior partner called me into his office and he told me I was doing a terrific job. And he said I was on the fast track to partner and he gave me a very generous bonus check. I went back to my office And I came to the conclusion that that wasn't enough. The money was great, but the piles of paper I saw on my desk represented my contribution to the world at that point. And so I knelt at my desk and said, Lord, is this what you would have of me? And that's when he called me to, to become an officer. Subsequent to that, the Salvation Army has sent us all over the world. We've served throughout the United States. We served for eight years in Kenya, four years in Nairobi, and four years in a little village near the Ugandan border called Kakamega. Three years in London, and then we've had a chance to see the Salvation Army's work in all kinds of places. In Bhutan, and in uh, uh, Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, uh, in the Congo. In the Middle East, uh, I had a hand in starting the Salvation Army's work in Oman and in Kuwait and in the UAE. We've had a chance to do things we never could have imagined uh, that we would do. It's been 34 years, Mike, and we would do it all over again.
0: That's great. It's a great story. It's, uh, and, and the passion comes through as you describe it. Um, so I mentioned at the beginning that you're the national commander. You're yes. headquartered in Washington, D.C., Um, it might surprise some people to know that the world
1: headquarters for the Salvation Army is in England. That's right. That's right. You
0: talk about that and how it got started. Sure.
1: The Salvation Army was founded in 1865 by a former Methodist minister and his wife, William and Catherine Booth, and they were struck by the terrible conditions in the East End of London as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution. And they were convinced that not only would those folks need to hear the gospel, but before they could hear the gospel, they would need to have their physical needs addressed. They were hungry and they were dressed in rags. So they started the Salvation Army there, and the United States was the first international extension of that work. In 1880, one man and seven young women, who we refer to as the Hallelujah Lassies, came over, (laughs) and landed at Battery Point in New York. And that was the beginning of the Salvation Army in this country. We're now uh, in every zip code of the nation. We now serve about 30 million people every year. We're the largest non-governmental social services provider in the nation. And we do it all for the same reasons that William and Catherine Booth first started working in the East End of London. Because there are people who are suffering and hurt, who feel abandoned and alone. And the Salvation Army is there to help them. That's just
0: absolutely amazing. The um, So you talked about that and you talked about how they came. I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to just leave during that time period, come on ships to a country you'd never seen uh, to do that. Now that that is truly the heart of a servant and what yes. I think of when
1: I think of having a servant's heart. Yes, and it still happens today, Mike. We still have people who will step forward and say, I know the Salvation Army is not in that country, send me. Uh, it harkens back to uh, the, Gosp- to the uh, Prophet Isaiah, uh, who when the Lord says, who will go for us? He says, here am I, send me. So people are still doing that today, so the army is still growing. It's a very exciting organization to be a part of. Wow!
0: Um, again, I just I, I'm in all of that. I really am. The um, I know the army has a specific structure. Yes. And I've learned that there are actually two wings of the army, and maybe those two wings have a little bit of healthy competing interests.
1: Would you like to uh, explain that? First of all, did I characterize that properly? Well, I think you're you're correct in that our mission statement suggests that we're doing two things at once. And this is an important thing, I think, for corporations as a whole to be mindful of. The Salvation Army's mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and meet human needs in his name without discrimination. So that means there will be instances in which the proclamation of the gospel is the function of the Salvation Army's work in particular circumstances, and there will be others in which its physical assistance, its social services, will be the most significant. We combine those into an integrated mission so that wherever the Salvation Army is, it's meeting both spiritual and physical needs. But you'll understand that that means that our mission statement is always intention. There is always a sense that we need, uh, do we need to adjust more in one direction? Do we need to adjust one uh, uh, in the other direction? I think that one of the keys to the longevity of the Salvation Army as an organization has been that dynamic. It's almost a dialectical relationship between the two parts of the Salvation Army's mission. It constantly forces us as a movement to ask ourselves, are we achieving that integrated mission? Most corporations, when they come up with a mission statement, will articulate a single goal. And in a sense that works, but it has been our experience that a goal, which creates a certain internal tension in the organization may in fact make it more flexible, make it more responsive to the marketplace. In other words, give it a longer life. Uh, and certainly it means that your, uh, uh, your strategic plan is not sitting on the shelf Uh, as soon as it's been formulated. So uh, in that sense, you're absolutely right. There are these these two wings. Now we pursue those two goals through a hierarchical structure. And that's another key to the Salvation Army's success. Uh, We have the military metaphor. So we have ranks. We have an appointment system. So an individual can be sent any place in the world at a moment's notice. My wife and I serve at the pleasure of our international leader in London, and he could call tomorrow and say, uh, we're on our way to an unknown location, and that would be fine with us. But that hierarchical system gives us speed and responsiveness. If there's a disaster, for example, Mike, uh, the Salvation Army, Is already there in that community we don't have to send in teams but if additional support is needed we don't have to convene a committee decide who's going to go the order simply comes down congratulations you're on your way and this is how long you're going to go for it that hierarchical structure uh, makes us efficient it promotes stewardship in terms of financial accountability in the organization and it makes us responsive to people's needs. So all of those things combine to make the army an effective institution.
0: I I see exactly what you're saying. I have personal experience with that in my home state. I've been involved in working with two disasters, two floods, and the army was the first person. I always said first person on the ground, but really, they've already there. They're, They're not coming there. in and on that, right. They're already there. And I worked with them, and it was uh, it was very eye opening to me. Yes. So, I work with people all over the uh, all over the country, and uh, I talk to them about leadership and team building and, and things like that. And I I, I tell people uh, that a lot of the things I learned about leadership. Now I've learned from a lot of people since then, but I tell them it started with me bouncing on my dad's knee. Mm -hmm. And probably a lot of lessons about leadership come from bouncing on a parent's knee. Not everybody had a dad. I recognize that. Don't mean to be insensitive, but it might be a grandparent or it might be just a trusted person who was in their life. Um, And I know you have some really, interesting views about leadership that you've shared with me. Hmm. So is there someone in your life that you would like to give credit to or talk about uh, and maybe give two or three points that you learned learn from them about leadership
1: that you carry forward in your philosophy as you lead the Salvation Army sure. in the United States? Well, I do have to begin with my father. Uh, my father was also national commander of the Salvation Army. He was national commander during the early 1990s now retired, living with mom in Florida. And I learned a lot of lessons from my father. Uh, A couple of the things come to mind right away. First, he said to me, uh, you must always operate under the conviction that where the army goes, the gospel goes. And that I found very useful. I have found very useful as a leader. Because if I believe that what is most important to me is always moving forward with the organization that I lead. It invests me in that organization. It's not simply uh, a career, it's a calling. And he emphasized that notion of calling uh, uh, when I saw it in his own life. And certainly when I became a Salvation Army officer, he emphasized it again and again. The other thing I think he taught me was that no leader is ever exempt from the fundamental rule, look up. And by that he meant always keep those individuals to whom you report fully informed as to what's going on. Every leader has to do that. No one is exempt. Uh, Even the general of the Salvation Army, uh, that general, that individual who's been elected by the international uh, leaders uh, has to report back to them. has to. He is the servant of servants, if you will. So he is reporting back to the people on the front. And I think a leader must always be conscious, therefore, of the fact that he or she is not the final word. They are always provisional. They are. Their position is less significant than their influence. And if they can use their position to, to be more influential, all to the good. The other person that uh, has had a big impact on me was a very fine Salvation Army officer with whom I served in Kenya. His name is Ezekiel Anzeze. He is an officer of many years experience, but no education, uh, a very humble man. But he taught me so many important things about community about the responsibility that a leader has to the people that he serves. Uh, I am deeply indebted to him for the lessons he taught me. One of them was that an individual without a community around him or her is never going to achieve the goals that he or she sets. There must be a context within which that leadership takes place. So any leader who believes that he or she, through uh, pure force of will, can make something happen, uh, is fooling themselves. Uh, He would often say that uh, he was very busy, and I would know that he'd been in the office all day. And I'd say, well, Commissioner, you haven't been out. You haven't done much. He said, oh, I know, but all those people who are working out there are working there on my behalf. So he always knew that whatever he had in mind was only going to be activated because of the degree to which he had inspired them to achieve it. He had to have a community around him. Uh, he never relied upon his own skills. So that was a powerful lesson. Those are just a couple of the thoughts that they have offered to me over the years.
0: That's incredible. And those are our lessons um, I know you mentioned your father from my father they they always come back to you later they think your your parents sometimes think you aren't listening yeah that's right but
1: they realize later in life that you were listening and you know you were listening and, and i'm convinced my daughter was listening to me too and uh and i hope my grandsons will as well <laughs> i'm sure they will
0: i'm sure they will um personnel yes let's talk a little bit about personnel your um uh, philosophies or criteria, whatever you want to talk about, about selecting personnel, how you manage them. Uh.
1: Yes. Personnel is obviously the heart and soul of leadership. It's where an individual's skills as a leader are put to the greatest test. I think there are a couple of things I've learned about managing people over the years. Uh, the first is don't try to change them. It's very common for leaders to say, well, I'm going to take this individual and I'm going to modify the way they approach this or that issue. I'm going to develop this skill in them. I'm going to eliminate that feature of their personality. I have found that to be largely fruitless in terms of being a leader over the years. I have found it far better and productive to identify those characteristics of the individuals that I lead and then combine them with the other people that I serve with in a Tetris-like kind of puzzle that will help build the strong team that we need. Now does that mean that people can't grow? Of course not. Does it mean they can't learn? Of course not. All those things will happen and you're always very grateful when they do. But fundamentally, the leader has to accept the people that he has. Um, uh, I used to say, make make a sweater with the yarn you have available. And usually it'll turn out to be a pretty good sweater. Uh, it's It's a useful principle. The other thing that I think that I've learned about personnel is that you must be forgiving. If your people do well, you're very happy. If they don't do well, you simply need to have another meeting with them. You avoid uh, making snap judgments. You always listen to the circumstances. You celebrate with them when they've done a good job, as small as the task might be. But if your people ever let you down, just sit down with them. Accept the fact that life goes on and you have another meeting, reset. Um, Commissioner Anzeze used to say, when someone kicks the ball off the field, just bring it back. And that is very good leadership uh, guidance in my judgment. I think so too.
0: Um, I had another guest recently, and uh, he talked about uh, a lot of the younger generation. He said, you know what? He said, you've got to let them fail. That's right you you've, you've got to give them the freedom to fail it's your job to be the rudder and help keep them between the guardrails and to make sure they know what the guardrails are but uh, that's how they learn and that's how they grow so absolutely. i think that's absolutely it's good good advice good advice so i tell people that i work with um wh- whatever level leader they are or whatever level manager they are in a company that when their employees go home that night they're the first thing that is talked about at the dinner table mm. that night. Mm. And, you know, you, you really have the opportunity to control that narrative. And I, maybe control is the wrong word, but whether that's going to be a good conversation or a negative conversation. The main thing that I think people are afraid of sometimes in an organization is criticism as a leader. I know you have a little different philosophy about that. Why don't you
1: talk to me about how you
0: view criticism?
1: Uh, I, I never fear criticism. I never take it personally. I always uh, view criticism as an indication that there's someone ready to take over when I retire that uh, someone feels they have a different way of doing it and they are invested enough in the issue to have an opinion as to how it should be done. That's all right with me. It might mean that uh, we have to sit down and talk about how we're going to go forward under the current circumstances, but I never hold it against someone if they criticize my leadership, my decisions. uh, I find that a a deep-seated desire on their part to really help move the organization, the army, forward. Mm -hmm. And that's a tremendous thing if you can tap into it, because that's precisely the kind of passion that you want out of your people. And if you can allow them to feel that they can express themselves, my own uh, uh, time as a leader has demonstrated that slowly but surely, They come around to perhaps seeing some of the things that you saw that they didn't initially. And I come to see some of the things that they had identified that I'd missed. So in the end, it all works out. And criticism criticism is a key part of that process. We shouldn't shy away from it. We shouldn't discourage it. We shouldn't squelch it. Uh, We should, uh, in a sense, welcome it.
0: I just heard an analogy in there. Uh, the analogy that came to mind when you said that is that you actually believe in giving them a peek behind the curtain. And in doing so, by you said you learned learn something from
1: them, it gives you the opportunity to actually look out from behind the curtain. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You're, you're in it together and uh, a, a wise leader is going to recognize that. And is going to say, you know, we're, we're in this boat together and we have opportunities and we have crises and we'll face them together. And if you have good communication and you, they can speak frankly to me about uh, the issues that are on their minds and hearts, that's, that's very good. You know, there's an example of that in scripture. Um, uh, the Apostle Paul never thought of himself as being uh, superior to any other person. He saw him, he recognized that he had more education. He refers to himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, He talks of himself as having great uh, experience and knowledge. But he says that all of that was rubbish, that he was the least of people. And that in one sense is what made him the powerful leader of the early church. Uh, and the source of so much wisdom that we look to today. Uh, And I think that's a great example of how a leader can function. I think that's uh,
0: a wonderful example. I know uh, the managers that worked for me, when we talked about things like that, and when we talked about criticism, I told them, I need your feedback. I need your criticism. Mm. You will never, have. there will never be any retaliation if you criticize me, now I would hopefully we can do this in a respectful and a civil manner. That is assumed, Mike. Yes, yes. Uh, but I would always tell them listen, and, and if you're especially upset about something, come in my office, close the door. We'll have one rule you have to keep one foot on the floor. <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> That's very but, good.
0: But you have to tell me what's yeah. going on. I need it. Now, yes. what I need of you is to realize that when you go back out that door, all of the people who are looking to you for leadership need to see you be a swan. When you go back out the door, you need to be a swan. So if you can't be a swan while you're out there, come in, get it off your chest, we'll talk about it, and then you can go back
1: out. And the same is true for uh, teams. The same is true for committees. You can hash it out in the room, and you can take longer than anybody imagined it would take. But when that door opens, you're all one exactly right and and it's a kind of a military principle on earth in the military
0: mm-hmm. uh, the commanders will tell you we need your feedback but when you know when it's all said and done and you've given your input and i need your input i will make the decision because i am the decision maker uh and when you leave i expect you you will support that decision and if you can't then mm-hmm. let's discuss your exit plan yeah that's exactly <laughs> right exactly right okay um so to me, since I was a kid, the Salvation Army has always been one of the most respected organizations that I remember. Mm-hmm. And my parents, the people in my extended family always talked about uh, the Salvation Army in those terms. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is the lack of controversy. And the, you know, there's so many people that are looking to find an organization to donate to something they can help. Mm. and they don't know where to look to. I know that it's it's been reported and I read in a lot of research that the Salvation Army has one of the lowest um, ratios of, of donations that come in mm. to expenses spent on management office staff and something like that and I and if I'm correct you may have the lowest,
1: In the nation or in the world. In terms of administrative and fundraising costs, it's very low indeed. You said that much more eloquently than I (laughs) did, but that's that's what the senator meant to (laughs) say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that proceeds, uh, that is something we work uh, at uh, a great deal. Uh, The Salvation Army uh, uh, has officers who wear the red epaulets, soldiers who wear uh, blue epaulets. We are blessed with dedicated employees and with very fine volunteers. And we try to ensure that in each of those groups a principle of stewardship and financial accountability and efficiency and effectiveness is followed. Officers for example. Uh, officers are not, do not receive salary. They do not receive wages. We receive a living allowance which is set nationally. And the difference between a first-year lieutenant and a commissioner of 34 years is very small. Uh, And it is set annually and then raised according to the economic conditions in the nation as a whole. But there is never any sense that we're going to spend a lot of money for the senior leadership or anything of that nature. Mm -hmm. That keeps our costs down. Certainly, we make extensive use of volunteers. We have about three million volunteers uh, across the nation. We could not accomplish what we do without those fine volunteers. The soldiers are lay members of the Salvation Army as a denomination. So they serve out of their convictions as to what they believe God has called them to do. And then our employees, we have very talented employees, about 65,000 across the country, Uh, And all of them, when they become Salvation Army employees, on their agreement form, they say that uh, they will support the mission of the Salvation Army. And we explain that that means that they're going to be doing something of significance to other people. And that has infused over the years within our employees a sense that they are involved in something that makes a difference. And that makes far more uh, impact on them than salaries. Do we have well-paid employees? Indeed we do. But they all approach it from a very uh, strong sense of uh, uh, keeping costs down uh, and accountability and stewardship. So that is something that has always characterized the Salvation Army and always will because it's fundamental to who we are. That's uh, incredible, and uh, and from a personal note, I know that uh, in
0: preparation for this, the people in your organization I've talked to, the office staff and everything, the the professionalism and their desire to help and to serve comes through, so uh, uh, Uh kudos to the uh, Salvation Army for that. Um, You know, as as we begin to wind down the interview, I wanna say that from the first conversation I had with your wife, till now, hearing you speak, I I have been moved. So I'd like to ask you and give you the opportunity to, there's a camera right here, that's your camera, Okay. to look into that camera, take 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, uh, whatever you like. Tell us what you'd like to know about the Army, how we can help, the biggest need, your website, uh, anything like that, our editors will put those in. Okay. Uh, This interview, it'll be
1: across the screen so people can help. All right, thank you for that opportunity. You're welcome. I'd like to express to everyone watching today, the deep appreciation of the Salvation Army for your generous and kind support over the years. In his last public address at the Royal Albert Hall in 1912, the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, spoke to a packed house of 5,000 Salvationists. And he uttered words that continue to motivate what we do today across this country. He said this, While women weep, as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry, as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is one drunkard left, while there is one lost girl on the street, and while there is yet one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. The Salvation Army is going to continue fighting, and we hope that you'll continue to support us in that work. If you'd like to know more about the Salvation Army, please visit SalvationArmyUSA.org or call your local Salvation Army. We'd love to get to know you better. And God bless you.
0: What an incredibly powerful uh, message from the founder. Uh, I can't thank you enough. I, I I mean that. I can't thank you enough for being here today. I feel like I've learned so much. And uh, I want to thank you. I know uh, the producers don't like me to leave my seat all, uh, but I will shake your
1: hand. God bless you, Mike. For coming thank near. you. God bless you also. It's been a delight to be with you. And you have a terrific show. Thanks for allowing me to be a part of it Well, today. you're
0: very welcome. And I have a feeling that uh, I will ask you back soon if you would come back and perhaps your wife... Uh, could come back with you and uh, see what a team you are forced to be dealt with. We'd be honored, and we'd be honored. Yes. And I wanna thank everyone uh, who's watched this show today. I really hope you got something out of that as, as I did. Uh, I've enjoyed this interview tremendously. I think you can tell that. And uh, so thank you very much and uh, we'll look for you on the next show. I wanna thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show and found something of value to help with the challenges you face as a leader. Please feel free to share this show with your friends on social media. And don't forget to visit my website, thegrowthfacilitator.com. And while you're there, book a free call with me. We'll see you next time on Cornerstone.